0: Hi everyone, Simon here. We'll return soon with new episodes of Lead with We, but today I want to share one of my personal favorites, my conversation with Frank Cooper, Senior Managing Director and Global Chief Marketing Officer of BlackRock, the largest hedge fund in the world that is leading the conversation around repurposing business. Welcome to this week's episode of Lead with We, where I'm talking to Frank Cooper, the Senior Marketing Director and Global Chief Marketing Officer at BlackRock. Frank, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks so much. Great to see you.
0: Great to see you too, Frank. And uh, you know, you've had a very interesting journey to end up at BlackRock, which is the largest hedge fund in the world. You worked at Def Jam's, you worked at BuzzFeed. How do you end up in the in, in the finance world?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I plan to make that uh, that switch from you know entertainment to uh, consumer goods to you know BuzzFeed to, to uh, financial services. No one can map that out, right? But and it seems like it's random, um, but it's actually not completely random. Now I was very fortunate early in my career to have uh, someone pull me aside and, and and say to me, "What what do you really want? You know, uh, what are you what are you passionate about? You know, what are you what energizes you?" And, and, and that person told me, hey, whatever that is, find that, because you need to connect that to your work. Because if you don't, you're going to work so hard. Eventually, you will find that that uh, your, your main work uh, will take over your life. And what you really enjoy doing will be pushed to the wayside. So if you can connect those two things early on, do it. And so I found that I, I actually wanted to find ways to increase people's potential, find ways to connect people to others. And if you look at my, my, my experience in the entertainment industry, you might say, like, oh, that was great. You, you know, you met some stars or whatever. It's fi- fantastic. But the way I looked at it was that, you know, Motown and Death Jam helped to connect people to cultures and people that they otherwise would be disconnected from, Black culture in particular. And and Motown did it in a very specific way of assimilation, and Death Jam did it in the opposite way. You know, when I was at PepsiCo, um, I love the fact that Indra Nui, when she became CEO, the first thing she did, she established the mantra of performance with purpose. And we were looking for ways to start to make brands more purposeful and make people empower people in, in, in much more specific ways. Uh, BuzzFeed, I was very excited about the fact that BuzzFeed, at its best, would take people who were historically marginalized and put them on center stage. And at BlackRock, never thought about going to financial services. In fact, uh, you know, uh, never even really thought about it as being an option or something that would be interesting. Um, but I had a really interesting conversation with Larry Fink. When I came in and, and met Larry, uh, Larry didn't talk about ETFs, or you know, uh, uh, returns on investment, uh, or uh, you know, active versus passive. What Larry talked about was purpose. He talked about empathy. He talked about uh, uh, diversity and inclusion. He talked about financial inclusion. Uh, we talked about these big ideas, all of which were exciting to me and, and um, things that I I found motivating.
0: Let me ask you this: It's such an interesting career journey. Is there a common denominator between sort of Def Jam and pepsico and now blackrock
1: 100 i mean in each each of those cases uh, those were companies and industries at the intersection of change uh, they were undergoing massive changes throughout those industries the record industry was undergoing massive change the food industry and beverage industry with pepsico uh pepsico is undergoing a massive change the publishing industry with buzzfeed and now financial services um, i thrive at that inter- intersection and and um, what I like is, is being part of leading that change. There's a lot of uncertainty around it. Um, but for me, uh, it's an opportunity to be more creative, uh, but also to have a greater impact in, in the world. And so that's the through line through all of it.
0: What was going on in the financial services industry that really demanded your attention? What change were you hoping to bring about?
1: so honestly when i when i thought about the financial services industry and i live in new york and and have many friends who are who are in investment banking and, and asset management investment management in general um but i honestly just literally thought about it as purely just money in an abstract sense it's like it's it's how you make money how you save it and it's great um and how you invest it and it's fantastic but i didn't think about it any deeper than that for me it was kind of a strange thing um you know my my father retired uh, and they started living differently. And it, it occurred to me that, wow, we never talked about his relationship with money or my mom's relationship with money or my relationship with money. We never really talked about um, saving and investing. We talked about earning uh, and we've covered all the other territories. We've covered physical fitness, we've covered nutrition, we've covered mindfulness, we've covered relationships, but we left out money. And, and I don't care how much education a person has or claims to have. What doesn't happen typically, at least in, in in most formal education, is teaching someone how to have a healthy relationship with money so that how you earn your money and spend it and save it and invest it and give it actually uh, inures to the benefit of your, your sense of well-being.
0: I think that is such a powerful point. I'm like you. You know, My dad and I never sat down and talked about money and how to invest it but you're right you do talk about earning it and getting a job and getting ahead but here we find ourselves where the industry at large is changing and and you're almost sort of representative of that industry as the largest hedge fund in the world but now you're increasingly becoming known BlackRock as a sustainability leader so for those who don't know describe to us what BlackRock is and how it's married this sort of necessary profit motive with being a sustainability leader
1: so so BlackRock is a Asset management and investment management company. We basically manage other people's money. We invest it across any type of investment you can imagine. You know, whether that's a stock, whether it's fixed income, a bond, uh, you know, or ETFs, uh, whether it's uh, um, private equity, it's across the full range. And that's one thing that makes BlackRock unique. Uh, unlike most companies, we cover the full spectrum of investing, um, but we do it on behalf of others, on behalf of clients. Um, it's what you know. The technical term is that we're fiduciary. And so we, we, we do that on a very large scale. We have a roughly $7 trillion of assets under management. Um, but when you break those assets now, what's fascinating is you start to look at the real people behind them. You start to see that what we're investing in, we're investing in pension funds all over the world. And behind those pension funds are teachers and, and, and firefighters and police officers. You know, uh, we're, we're heavily invested in what they call exchange traded funds, You know, um, which basically track an index. And um, that's allowed more individuals to come into the marketplace and to invest in, in, in stocks in a way that, that's more safe for them, right? And so what we do is um, we invest across that full spectrum. What's happened in the past, say, let's say 10 years, since the global financial crisis, people rightly so started to question, you know, does this system serve me well? You know, uh, is it allowing uh, me to participate in a way that uh, I will benefit and maybe my children will benefit from this and, uh, uh, and improve upon what I've built. And increasingly, people were answering that question with absolutely not. And you started to see that populate around the world in the form of populism, which turned into nationalism. And you started to see people's expectation of a fund and firms and companies in general change. They, st- they started to say that this system is not working for me. Uh, I want to see a change. And Larry Fink, our CEO, every year, uh, you know, puts out a CEO letter in January, and, and the themes were consistent. You know, uh, w- what Larry did is he didn't really focus first and foremost on the industry and say, hey, this happening in the industry, let me tell you what to do. He, per- he focused on what was happening in the world, what was, what was happening in, in society and in culture, and how did that impact our industry? He talked about long-termism. He talked about diversity and inclusion. He talked about purpose, and most recently, he talked about environmental sustainability. And um, and, and for us, again, it's not just a kind of a, a clarion call out in the, in, in the world. It's we ta- We've taken that, and in Larry's letter, we've taken those issues and pulled them back into the industry. So when you look at something like environmental sustainability, what we concluded is that climate risk is investment risk.
0: that intersection you're talking about between environmental responsibility and sort of investment growth is a tension which is continually explored today. I mean, it's something at the heart of the re-engineering of the financial industry or the financial services um, industry. Let me ask you this. Fundamental to what you just described is a tension between a long-term perspective and a short-term perspective. You know, the equities markets, they want to make more money sooner rather than later. Yet, if we are going to be more responsible to the environment, we've got to take a more long-term effect. So, you know, you're at the intersection of this as the largest hedge fund in the world. How do you calibrate or rationalize those two so that you can discharge your fiduciary duty in a sense and, you know, maximize people's investments, but also, you know, protect their future as well?
1: It's a really, really tough situation. Um, You know, if, if you put yourself in the position of a leader of a company, a CEO of a company, and you have quarterly pressure. Uh, from your investors uh, to generate greater returns and growth. It's very difficult putting in in place a a long-term proposition. But what we've seen is this. When a company actually puts a stake in the ground and is clear about what it stands for, it's clear about why it exists, it's given a lot more latitude because then when that company innovates, um, it makes more sense to investors. Uh, And most important, it makes more sense to employees. I think the major unlock to all of this is that employees are, are demanding it. When you look across those stakeholders, uh, I think that's where the pressure is going to emanate from, first and foremost, will be employees.
0: I am optimistic as well for that very reason. I think we're finally seeing the necessary coalition of people or stakeholders, including employees, including investors, including consumers, all coming together and saying, we need to do something differently. So in your opinion, you know, this is Larry's third letter in which you know he called for this, well, he announced that he's sees a fundamental restructuring of the capital markets. You know, why now? Why this shift now? Why do, Why is BlackRock speaking out now? Is it a function of urgency? Is it a function of the opportunity to retool ourselves while we still have time?
1: I think it's a combination of both of, of, of those things. You know, I mean, there's definitely a sense of urgency. You know, the, the clock is ticking in terms of our ability to address the environmental concerns that many people have raised. And whether you, someone believes in that or not, what is true? is that there is a widespread perception that climate change is real. And that widespread perception will affect the assets that, uh, that, that people are holding. You now, We've had protests at our office. We've seen uh, um, reports uh, come in from people who ordinarily would, would be on the side of, of not making change, saying that it's time for change. I mean, I think people, enough people have rung the bell that it caused us and many others to pause. But I think what really changed everything um, and for, for Larry BlackRock was that it was no longer just a social or cultural issue. It was now so so deeply embedded in, in, in culture and society that it would start to affect investments. And it's not purely a money issue. Um, it, it, it's, it's more of, uh, kind of an awakening that when you think about risk, uh, it's not purely about monetary issues at this moment. When you think about risk, it's about how the cultural societal impact will affect the way in which an asset actually grows over time. Think about this, for the longest we've been saying, uh, you know what, um, climate change is coming, don't worry about it, it's 2050. It's gonna happen in 2050. If you have a 30-year mortgage, we're now in 2020, uh, a 30-year mortgage takes you into 2050. How does that get priced into you know, the risk of certain mortgages in, in areas that are, that are low-lying areas uh, um, across the country you know, that are prone to, fu- to flooding. And we're seeing that get worse and worse over the, over the years. It, that's kind of the clearing call, It's that it's, it's here upon us now. You can run the numbers, you can see it. It's no longer this distant future. It's affecting the assets uh, um, that we currently have.
0: I think you're absolutely right in that, You know, not only are issues like climate affecting the lives of people outside business, but it's really affecting business in terms of their bottom line. We've seen a shift because, you know, climate is affecting supply chains and their basic ability to produce the products that they want to sell. It's affecting their ability to attract the employees and win the talent wars they need. It's affecting their ability to win the, con- the, the goodwill and loyalty of consumers who care about the future. And so it finally is really visiting upon the bottom line drivers of business. And so business has really woken up but I'm sure you must get a lot of pushback. I mean, in terms of the companies you invest in or how you encourage them to change, what sort of, what sort of pushback do you see and how do you deal with it?
1: Well, look, I mean, no, no CEO and, and most board, boards of directors don't want to have additional pressures and constraints put upon them. And, you know, we're basically making a public statement that change needs to happen now. And so the pushback you get is that even if I agree uh, with what you're saying, BlackRock, I, I don't want you to impose it. I don't want you to draw the line. Um, we want to have flexibility uh, to make these changes ourselves. And you get some people who would say, "We don't even necessarily agree with you." Uh, and and who are you to tell us, you know, uh, what we should be doing? The bottom line is, well, we're making a choice on behalf of our clients that we're looking at what we believe is happening in the world and how that will impact investments, how that will impact companies over the long term. No one has to agree with us. Um, It's our judgment uh, about uh, what's happening in the world. So the pushback comes all the time uh, and from all sorts of places. But along with the pushback, you get a lot of people who basically say thank you for giving us some air cover uh, because we know it's the right thing to do. And we know it's it's actually beneficial to our company in the long term.
0: You know, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? We find in our work that often as soon as you give people permission to do what they want to do instinctively or what's innate within them, which is to be more responsible, to be more purposeful, and you can articulate what that looks like, it's like a house of cards that suddenly all falls into place because, you know, no one wants to really kind of make profit to the extreme at the cost of everything that makes business possible. That just doesn't make any sense. And if they can drive growth on the strength of being purposeful, why would they, why would they not?
1: the reason I think it's so hard is that so you have generations of executives who've been trained to think about one thing to maximize the profit for the shareholder, you know, the Milton Friedman doctrine. Um, Everyone who's gone to business school um, a major business school. um, That's the first thing they teach you. And then all the courses flow from that. Then you have people who've been successful in doing it that way. And now we're saying to them, guess what, that is no longer the case. That's no longer enough. Um, you have to think about a whole nother set of stakeholders, employees, uh, um, communities, your business partners, uh, as well as shareholders. And quite honestly, it, it's freaking some people out because they're like, I don't know how to balance that. I mean, what's the what's the intellectual construct that I should use to think about how to balance the interests of these stakeholders? Um, and um, and I got to shift by the way I, I, I've been thinking for the past 20, 25 years, many people don't want to do that. Um, but they have to do it because the expectations of the people that are most important to them have shifted so so profoundly. Um, and again, I think employees will drive it, but I think communities will put pressure on companies also. And I think business partners will put pressure, pressure on companies all, in addition to the employees and the communities.
0: Yeah, I, th- I agree. I think the days of incremental change where we sort of iterate on the way things were done in the past are gone. In fact, we've got to back out of the future now. We've got to kind of look at the reality of what's coming towards us from the future in terms of client and so on and say, OK, working backwards, what do we need to do to be in business, to be relevant, to solve for these issues? And that's not a burden. It's a big you know, innovation unlock in some ways. And I, I guess that's even more true this year than ever with COVID and the Black Lives Matter movement and so on. There was build, the, the momentum behind this shift was already building in 2019. I think we all felt that, especially around the Sustainable Development Goals and climate crisis and so on. But then COVID just really took over the day. What effect has that had on how you see the role of purpose in business? Has it accelerated it? Has it changed it?
1: So, look, I mean, I, I, I believe that a crisis, particularly a deep social crisis, Reveals what what's already beneath the surface. It amplifies it. It accelerates it. And so, you know, what we're seeing, even with COVID nineteen, what we're seeing is uh, wealth inequality is a problem. We're seeing racial inequity is a problem. We're seeing disparities in the in the healthcare system uh, is, a, is a is a problem. Um, and and we're seeing that who's actually leading in the office um, across various countries. Uh, um, actually matters and so all these things are coming to the coming to the the surface and the question is as a company how do you address all these disparate issues i got black lives matter i got COVID 19 i have uh uh you know economic pressure you know i i have employees that i want to retain how do you how do you maintain how do you put all that together without having just kind of random responses to these various issues that are facing you um i think that's purpose what purpose is all about. Purpose is about setting a compass for the company so that when you start to make decisions, you filter it through your sense of purpose.
0: And I mean, for those that are in triage mode, they're literally trying to survive. Are you saying to them, you know, they need to make that leap of faith knowing that by really making purpose core to their business, they're setting themselves up for you know success more effectively in the long term? I mean, it's, it's a really big ask for companies that are just breathlessly trying to hang on.
1: No, and that's a great point. And look, um, whether purpose is central to everything you do depends on where you are in the life cycle of the company also. You know, you take any startup, for example, just any startup in the best of times, they're not thinking about purpose deeply, really. They're thinking about how do I survive? How do I pivot to a place where I become profitable? And I would say that for many, many small companies right now, they should focus on the same thing, however, which is surviving. Um, However, what we do know is this, whether it's a recession or a social crisis, those companies that just hunker down and try to hang on typically don't make it to the other side. They typically don't make it. You got to find a way to play both defense and offense through a crisis. And, and so the defensive piece, I get it. You got to do what you have to do to figure out how do you maintain and survive. But you also have to open up another lens and say, well, what can I do to actually help people or do my part or to create value or to serve a human need in the spirit that we're in right now. Defense and offense is is critical to get through this crisis, whether you're big or small as a
0: company. And, you know, not to be cynical or naive, there would be those out there that would say, listen, that's great coming from large corporations that have deep pockets or from, you know, large funds like yourselves. But really there's a strong sense that there are deeply vested interests that are really, they don't want things to change. They want things to stay the same because they're doing very well and making hay. Why should we believe that now is any different? Why, why is it really going to translate at a foundational level in terms of the way people do business, the way they invest? Or is this just, you know, another, another chapter and a long story that will continue without anything really changing?
1: I mean, look, I, I think the history of business the history of, of, of societies has been to resist change. But the change happens when you see a groundswell. And, and what are we seeing right now? Here's what we're seeing. We're seeing more employees saying, "I, the best talent, saying, I don't wanna work for a company unless I believe that company is in some way making a positive con- contribution to society. Now, what are we seeing? We're seeing communities uh, and activists who understand that, you know what, I understand individual cases of inequity I'm not concerned about that. I'm concerned about the entire system. And so now we're seeing a much more organized, uh, concerted effort to address the entire system of things, not just approximate, approximate causes. What are we seeing? We're seeing communities across the world saying, we're not gonna invite companies in uh, and welcome them into our communities unless we believe they're helping us a- along. And so once you start getting it uh, from um, employees, to communities, to activists, and now even investors. Some investors are saying, you know what, Uh, I want a great return, but I think I can get a great return, but also invest my values. And we're seeing that. And so to me, that is the perfect storm. And it is the recipe for change when you see unrelated segments of society all pushing toward the same thing, all pushing in the same direction. But there's one thing that actually, I think makes this inevitable. And that is, is simply not sustainable. <laughs> now, this, it, sustainability is the right word. The system that we have in place is not sustainable because too many people are left out. And But the system actually works because it can accommodate a much wider range of people. It just requires leaders to have the courage to make the shift. And those leaders don't, that don't have the courage, they'll start to, to lose the talent war. Those leaders that don't have the courage, I think, We'll we'll start to see customers walk away. And this particular crisis, again, I think amplifies and accelerates all those feelings and amplifies and accelerates the need for for the changes that we're talking about here in, in this podcast.
0: What do you say to a CEO who is either resistant, has their head in the sand, has their bottom line as a priority? What do you say to them to get that unlocked?
1: So what I would say is that um, purpose is not what you think it is. Um, You know, um, you're probably thinking of purpose in a way of this kind of extra responsibility and burden that you have to impose upon yourself and upon your company. But purpose is the unlock for you. Um, But it starts from a place that may be unfamiliar Um, because most people when they think of purpose they think of mission And, 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 and mission that you're looking in the outside world. Um, this actually starts from a place that's deep inside your company. It starts from getting every single employee in your company to find a personal connection to your sense of purpose.
0: Frank, if you could give us a couple of examples of where companies of different sizes have retooled in response to what you're talking about in Larry's letters and has consciously gone about re-engineering themselves and how they engage their employees and how they go to market and what they make in a way that does a better job of serving our future while also serving their bottom line.
1: So, so look, I mean, the the best story I can give you is BlackRock itself. Here's what we did um, for all 15,000 employees. What we started off doing is, is we said um, we're going to have an articulation of our purpose that is co-authored by our employees, and so we actually helped. We held these two, day, three day events actually, where um, um, we would talk with each other about the stories that, that we found be the, 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 the most inspiring about what BlackRock has done. You know, we 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 uh, ran algorithms to kind of pull out words that we that we found were kind of recurring words that people would use about, about BlackRock. We did that, came up with a statement, and and what we quickly realized was that the statement in and of itself uh, was meaningful. But was was um, but fell far short of what we thought was necessary to actually bring this to life and make it real. And what we realized is that um, this, the the next most important step, and we talked about this earlier, was that we had to figure out a way for employees to feel connected to our purpose statement. And so we went through a bunch of exercises. I, I don't know if you heard the term uh, ikigai, um, which is the Japanese term. Um, um, for kind of finding your your personal purpose, uh, we went through went through that versus a, a bunch of different um, methodologies for identifying what is it that uh, creates a sense of fulfillment in in you as a person, and uh, and how you can connect that to your job. So we finally put together a workbook, and we had we sent this workbook out to all fifteen thousand employees. They went through that process, uh, and it's an ongoing process. But um, the stories that came back from that were amazing. In terms of people feeling more connected to the firm, we then said, okay, now that's an ongoing process. Um, now we have to figure out how do we actually turn the lens externally. We're actually in the midst of that right now. Um, we started doing it in January with the January letter, but we're in the midst of it now, trying to articulate you know, uh, our purpose is to help more and more people experience financial well being, but how do you bring that to life in the world where it's meaningful and differentiated? Um, we hope that you'll start to see that in, in September.
0: And have you seen a difference internally? Have you seen employees show up in a different way?
1: You know what? We did, um, but then uh, COVID-19 hit. And so uh, it's hard to judge it now. You know, it's, it's hard to see, you know, what effect that's having in terms of employee morale, employees feeling a sense of very of, of fulfillment uh, in, in their jobs. Where, where I've seen it be more effective um, during this time is to direct our, our energy and investments. Um, you know, as we are starting to innovate, we are, we're definitely turning to our sense of purpose and our purpose statement to help guide us. We're definitely using that as a compass in terms of where should we put our our resources over the next six months to nine months to, to 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 a year.
0: And and you know, as the largest hedge fund in the world, you have a better perspective on all of this than anybody because you're sort of at the top of the hill and you can see the patterns out there. Why are you optimistic? Why do you think we can meet these challenges in the next couple of decades?
1: Well, look, I mean, we, we, we have a choice to be optimistic or pessimist, right? It's kind, of, it's kind of binary in a way. Uh, um, and, um, and I've never seen pessimism and a lack of enthusiasm lead to any kind of change that's meaningful. Never, in anything. Yeah. Um, and, and so I think we have to start with a sense of, of hope. Um, but most importantly, optimism is a belief that tomorrow will be better than today. And, and, and we know we can do that. You know Whether we can change it in the long run, who knows? Um, but we know we can make tomorrow better, better than today. And I think the, the, way, the way that we, we address what is clearly a, um, uh, a, a, a massive challenge uh, across the globe, uh, what started off as a tense, uncertain proclamation, is now widely accepted as being normal the fact that sustainable investing uh is uh, g- can generate normal returns that's actually now not it's not a big debate anymore if you change the way the investors think and you put that on top of all the other changes um, that have occurred for me that's that's a source of optimism uh and and, and it's one more step toward what i think is, is the solution
0: I couldn't agree more. We've seen such an acceleration of this mindset over the last few years. But if you were to cast your crystal ball out to the future, what's your vision for what, for what business will look like in the future?
1: Look, I mean, my, my vision for, for what business should look like in the future is rooted in this idea that uh, we would have purpose-driven leaders. Every single company would define why they exist, how they help um, solve some human need, And they figure out how to do that in a way that's profitable. First of all, I don't think that's a, um, uh, unrealistic, uh, a a request, but also I think it's one in which employees will find greater fulfillment. Uh, leaders will have a a greater impact and communities will welcome more companies in Mm -hmm. as they, as they start to pursue that. I think we're right there Simon right now today on the precipice of that happening. And I think we're, we're going to see a dividing line. Um, between those companies that embrace that and those that don't. Um, And I think the ones that don't, I believe will pay a price.
0: That line in the sand is great cause for optimism. I agree. You know, you're either on the right side of history or you're not. And a growing number of companies are really looking to the future and seeing their responsibility. Frank, thank you so much for your insights and thank you to BlackRock for its leadership in this area. And uh, we look forward to following how it rolls out inside BlackRock itself, but also also you know, how you inspire more more companies to think and act this way as well. So thanks for the time.
1: Thanks so much. Appreciate it.
0: Today, we were talking with Frank Cooper, the senior marketing director and global chief marketing officer of BlackRock, who shared with us a few things that they're doing to become a purposeful company themselves. First, recognize that the old system of shareholder profit above all else is no longer sustainable, and then recognize that sustainability itself is increasingly becoming a growth and innovation driver. And finally, make those changes internally and externally to stay relevant to today's fast-changing marketplace and also to position your company to lead the future. You can subscribe to Lead with WE on Apple, Google, or Spotify, and please recommend it to your friends and colleagues so they too can become purposeful and profitable businesses. If you'd like to learn more about how you can build a purposeful brand, check out wefirstbranding.com where we have lots of free services and case studies. See you on the next episode of Lead With We.